Today's uh, passage is in the book of Ephesians, chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. Paul says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. Mike. Good morning, Parkway Church. This is very crazy for me to get, to get to sing with you guys down here. It was an amazing experience. So now I know what y'all go through every week, and I'm jealous. Uh, it's awesome. Uh, as Zach said, my name is Tim. If you're, if you're new here, you've never been here before, uh, I'm usually uh, over here with a guitar. This is my little zone, uh, but they're allowing me to break the barrier and come out here this morning. So I'm excited to be here. Uh, hopefully this is not the last time I do this. <laughs> we'll see. Uh, Zach kind of mentioned uh, already why we use uh, multiple preachers uh, in our services. And uh, obviously, three-fifths of our staff is uh, out of town in Romania right now. We have several elders out. And so obviously, it can be, it can be practical. Uh, if you want to know more of those reasons, we have a blog that's super helpful on our website. Uh, theparkwaychurch.com slash blog. You can read a blog about why we use uh, multiple preachers. By the way, whoever uh, designed the website, really great stuff. So y'all should check it out. It's amazing. Uh, one of the, practically speaking, one of the reasons that it can be really helpful for us to uh, use multiple preachers is because every now and then in our text, you know, we've been walking through Ephesians, uh, uh, a text will come up that happens to deal with a certain topic that one of us, uh, one of the staff, one of the ministers, one of the, one of the elders is thinking about on a regular basis. And so, for instance, if a text came up that dealt with the dynamics of the family, how, what the Bible says about uh, the relationship between parents and children, well, you probably want Carl, our family minister, to talk about that because he's the guy that spends all of his time thinking about what the Bible says about parenting, what the Bible says about uh, the obedience of children to their parents, what the Bible says about following the Lord in your parenting. So you want Carl to talk about that. If a text comes up that talks about, uh, I don't know, baseball or Navy SEALs or Red Bull, there's one guy that you want talking about all of that, and that is Zach Lee. And if a text comes up that talks about worship or really good coffee or skinny jeans, or as I call them, well-tailored jeans, uh, well, then I'm your guy. And so luckily for you, uh, our text is not about skinny jeans or coffee. It is about worship. And so here I am before you this morning. Uh, before I get to that, I want to say today I woke up in McKinney. We finally moved to our house in McKinney, which is amazing. I know. I'm so excited. It's so good to be in this city. The sun shines a little brighter over here. The, the water tastes a little cleaner. I don't know what's in it, but I'm hooked, and I'm in love with McKinney, and I'm glad to finally be here. Uh, we, Kelsey and I, uh, we started looking for a house here in McKinney in December. Uh, and if you're thinking of buying a house in McKinney, best of luck. This market is crazy. If you're thinking of selling your house, do it. You'll make gajillions. Uh, the market out here is just crazy. So uh, we started looking in December. We finally closed on our house in May. And then since then, we've kind of been working, uh, you know, did all new floors, new paint, 
deep cleaned everything, Kelsey, uh, Lord bless her, like deep cleaned all the blinds and everything. Uh, so the house is looking amazing. And uh, yesterday, all of this work that took a, like a month and a half, all of this work finally culminated into uh, Landon and Edwin and Nigel and Julian and Zach for a limited period of time. All these guys <laughs> helping uh, us move into our house uh, so we could finally fulfill this purpose of everything we have been doing just to move, move here and live in McKinney. Even Kelsey's brother's uh, roommate stayed all day and helped us unpack the kitchen. So all of this patience, all of this waiting, everything we've done was all for the purpose of living here in McKinney to be near this church, the people, I mean, not the building, although that is a nice six-minute commute, let me tell you. Uh, all of it culminated into us finally getting here. And uh, once everything had been moved in and everybody kind of left, Kelsey was putting Haddon down. Uh, Haddon's my sweet little 10-month-old son, if you don't know. He's very large. He's very cute. Uh, she was putting Haddon down, and I just kind of got to revel in all that God has done. I just got to sit there in my house, it was quiet, and I just got to sit there and imagine how long it took to get here, and how long it could have taken, and how short it actually was, and that God knew all along all of the stuff that he was gonna do, the way that he was gonna do it, he knew the house we were gonna find, and finally, I'm just reveling in the reality that we're here. That's what I got to do last night. It was very worshipful. The reason I, I share all of that is that I think in the same way this morning, uh, Paul is stepping back in Ephesians, and he's just taking it all in. He's taking in all that God has done. From Ephesians 1 through 3, Paul has been detailing all of these things that God has done. He's been talking about uh, predestination. He talked about how all believers were chosen prior to the creation of the earth, uh, chosen to be found in Christ. He talked about how... Uh, Christ had come, though we were all dead. Everyone is born uh, sinful. Everyone is born with no hope of finding any kind of redemption or reconciliation to God. But God, being rich in mercy, has offered redemption in Christ. Paul's talked about that. He's also talked about how uh, this gospel in Christ, both Jew and Gentile, are reconciled. So sin separates man from mankind, and the gospel comes and reunites mankind to mankind. And Paul also talked about all of this displaying to the universe and even the demons that God is wise and that their gig is up, that sin will ultimately be defeated uh, soon. That's what Paul's been talking about. And then today, he steps back. He considers all of this. As we saw last week, he prays that the Ephesian church would be able to comprehend all of this, that they may be strengthened by it and grow in a knowledge of Christ's love, and then Paul worships. He just worships God today. He steps back and he revels in the wondrous things that God has done. All that God said he would do has been done, and Paul gets to see it. He gets to experience. He gets to witness it. And so Paul worships. So that's our text today. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll get a little further into it. Uh, Father, as we, as we gather, uh, and as we sing, and as we as we pray, as we take communion, uh, as we rest from theological equipping class and community groups and children's activities and our youth and all that, I pray that we would glorify you, that we would worship, that we would remember all that you've done. 
God, remind us of all that you've done. May your spirit remind us of your gospel. Remind us of the reality that we were dead. As, as Jonathan Edwards says, uh, we contribute nothing to our salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Remind us of your grace. We thank you for your mercy. May we hear your word and respond appropriately, appropriately being in worship. May that be our response today in our lives. May we respond in eternal adoration. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. So, our text this morning is called a doxology. And if you're anything like me, your attention span is so short that you've already forgotten what the text this morning is. So, I'm going to read it again, because usually by this time, I will have forgotten what we're actually talking about. So this is for you, just helping you out. Everyone out there who's got the ADD like me, I'm helping us out. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So this is a doxology, a traditional doxology. And I know that sounds like a, like a crazy uh, made-up word, and really what it is, is it's two Greek words just kind of mashed together. Doxa, meaning glory, and logos, meaning word or message or speech about or a statement about. And so a doxology, put simply, is a, a statement of glory. A statement of glory. That's what a doxology is. If you grew up in the church, uh, or if, if you know the name of the last song we sang, that is traditionally called the doxology. And essentially, uh, a doxology is this old traditional Jewish form of prayer or worship. Uh, there's no other kind of... If you're talking about a doxology, you're talking about something from the Hebrew Bible. It's this traditional form used throughout Judaism. And it combines two things. It requires a, a praise of God, talking about saying, praise God. And then an expression of God's infiniteness, his eternality. I don't know if that's a word, but it works. So God's eternality. <clears throat> and so another thing doxologies are is they kind of follow a discussion about God's character or God's nature. And so here's, here's my little example of a doxology. Say I'm writing a letter to you and I'm talking about uh, the mercy of God, how God is so merciful. And I'm talking, I'm sharing with you the gospel in this letter, just talking about God's mercy to those who are in Christ. Uh, my doxology would say, praise God who is merciful forever and ever. That's a doxology. It's two, two parts, and it's all founded upon the discussion that came before it. And so this is a traditional Jewish prayer, and it's only directed at God. That's what all doxologies are, okay? That's, that's a lot of information that all of your faces say, I didn't need to know that, Tim. It is important to know. And let me tell you why I tell you all of this stuff. Oh, actually, I had some good examples of some doxologies. Uh, Psalm 41, 13. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. Can you see that? Praise to God. From everlasting to everlasting, forever and ever. Amen and amen. Okay? Here's another one. Hebrews 13, 20 through 21. Now may the God of peace equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. You ready for it? To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. 
Let's just do one more. I have received full payment. Let me give you some context of this verse. Paul is thanking the Philippians at the end of his letter because he needed money and they gave him money in order to continue in the journeys that he was going in. Specifically, he needed money in Thessalonica and so they provided it. And so at the end of his letter, he's just thanking God for providing everything he needed and this is what he says. I've received full payment and more. I am well supplied and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And here's this very clear doxology. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So doxologies, they praise God and then they talk about how God is eternal or they give glory to God forever and ever. So whenever you see that in the Bible, know, oh, this is a doxology. This is this classic, it's almost like Hebrew poetry instantly recognizable. So why do I mention all of this boring stuff about what doxologies are? Uh, a few weeks ago in one of our theological equipping classes, we talked about uh, the importance of understanding genre in a text. Uh, I don't know how many of you were actually there, but if you weren't, you can go on the website that is well designed, and you can go to theparkwaychurch.com and click on theological equipping recordings, and you can listen to our recording about the genre of a text. You have to know the genre of a text in order to properly interpret a text. If you read uh, Chronicles of Narnia without understanding that the genre is fantasy, you will walk away actually thinking that some infinite being that is God is actually a lion named Aslan. And that would be a wrong interpretation of that book. There are no such thing as talking beavers, okay? We have to know that that's fantasy. In the same way, if you read this doxology this morning without understanding the genre of doxology, without understanding what's actually happening, then you'll miss a lot of the richness of what's going on here. In these two verses, this is one sentence, and there's a lot of richness going on in this text. You'll miss that everything being said here is actually built upon everything that Paul has been discussing thus far in his letter to the Ephesians. That essentially his doxology is fueled by the strong theology that he's already discussed. You'll miss, if you don't understand that this is a doxology, you'll miss that Paul is, is just stepping back from all that he has witnessed regarding God's wisdom and character. He's just stepping back and he's worshiping based on everything he's been thinking through. And another thing that you might miss if you don't understand that this is a doxology is that he's including Christ in the doxology. Therefore, he's claiming that Christ is Yahweh. You don't write doxologies for anyone but Yahweh. And if you include somebody else in the doxology, you're including him in the Godhead. Therefore, Christ is Yahweh. So, with our doxology lenses on, okay, now we know what we're looking for. The praise of God, some word about God's eternality. Let's look at verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. You see, I bolded that. It actually showed out nicely. Uh, now to him, uh, who is he talking to? Who is he talking about? This is just a continuation of Paul's prayer from last week in which he prayed to the Father. Uh, and so I just want us to see, this is a kind of a pet topic of mine. <laughs> I just want us to see that Paul is very Trinitarian in this prayer, as you'll see in his prayer before this you'll see that he's very Trinitarian. He's praying to the Father. And there's some that would say 
This idea of the Trinity is some newfangled idea by heady theologians, uh, or maybe that it was an invention in the early church to help the church relate to polytheism. No. The Christian God is one God, three persons. This is what we call the Trinity. If you've never heard about this, it's just, these words are like blowing your mind. Trinity, what's he talking about? How can God be one God, three persons? We have a really helpful theological equipping class on our, on our website that's well-designed. <laughs> Go check it out. It's called Trinitarianism. It'll help explain everything that I wish I could clarify here, but I don't have the time to. I just want us to see that Paul is, is Trinitarian and that to be a Christian is to believe in the Trinity. You cannot be a Christian and reject the Trinity. Uh, it's not a new idea. Otherwise, Paul would have to be explaining what he's meaning when he says the Father, when he says the Son, when he says the Spirit. He doesn't have to explain it because it's already a common idea that they understand. That's a pet topic. <laughs> uh, so now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. And I think I have a different slide uh, that highlights something. There it is who's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. So, Paul likes to do something, if not, as a, Greek is already hard enough to translate into English, but Paul also sometimes kind of puts these words together and mashes words together in weird ways to create new words. And so we have a little bit of translation difficulty in this. Uh, the word for able is actually the word that really means power. God has, it's not just that it's something he's able to do. Like I'm, I'm able to open a jar of pickles uh, despite my music arms, I can do it. Uh, it's not just that God's able, but he is strong, he is mighty, he is powerful. It's, it's kind of, there's this theme of, uh, of power throughout Ephesians and this is just adding to that theme. Uh, and as well, when he says far more abundantly, that's a weird word that Paul makes up that essentially means Think of the most that you can think of, and it's beyond that. Some Bible translations will say exceedingly more than all that we ask or think. Paul's just trying to describe it's far greater than any of us can imagine. So you could read it, now to him who is powerful, who does far more than the absolute most we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Now, what on earth does that mean? I will tell you what it does not mean. It does not mean uh, that Christians have superpowers. It does not mean that if you put this under your eyes at your next football game, you'll make every field goal or you'll catch every touchdown. That's not what this means. I remember uh, as a kid growing up, there were these guys, I'm gonna try not to hate on them too much, but there were these like Christian bodybuilder guys that would like run around to different churches and youth groups and even schools and I mean, their names are probably like Hans and Bjorg or something. Uh, there are these ginormous guys and their whole thing was they would like rip phone books and like crush thunder blocks on their heads and they'd be like, when I was, before I met Jesus, I was weak, but now I'm strong in Christ, you know? And that was their whole deal. This text is not saying that. That's, that's not, I don't think when Christ says, go therefore and make disciples, I think that's one of the furthest things he had in mind was the, I don't know. Uh, so don't think that that's what this is talking about. Uh, remember that this is a doxology. This will help us to know that this is a doxology, which means this praise is built upon everything Paul has already said. 
Therefore, if we want to know what Paul's talking about, we can think back to what he's already discussed. He's just reveling in what has already been accomplished. So when he says this, he's helping us to, to, to think about what sinner, what sinner could have uh, ever thought or asked that they would be chosen before the foundation of the earth to be in Christ? What, what sinner would have ever thought that they could be redeemed uh, in Christ uh, to the God that they rebelled against, that they were born into rebellion against? As Paul said, we're born children of wrath. What sinner could have ever imagined, could have ever asked or thought that we would be not only redeemed, but welcomed and adopted as sons and daughters? Who could have asked or thought of that? And even Gentiles, who he's writing to, we've talked about throughout Ephesians, this, this divide between Gentiles and Jews, that, that the gospel, it unifies these two and into the church. What Gentiles could have ever imagined that they would be welcomed into the kingdom of God. The people that Paul is writing to can probably remember, in Ephesians 2, Paul references a dividing wall of hostility, which is something in the temple. Uh, there's an outer court of the temple, which Gentiles could enter, the temple in Jerusalem. And there's an inner court that Gentiles could not enter. Otherwise, they would die. We've got like archeological digs that have shown us these signs that say, basically, enter at your own risk, Gentiles, we're gonna kill you. These Gentiles receiving this letter can remember this wall. They understand this wall. And Paul has already discussed that that wall has been broken down. What Gentile could have asked or thought that that would happen? None of them. But now they're united with the Jews in the church. Together they're combined to make one bride of Christ and all have been adopted as the people of God and Christ. This is more than we can ask or think. It's more than we can ask or think. That is what Paul is talking about. But lest you think this work is limited to the past, what he's saying here is in the present tense. He's saying that God is able to do, and then he says, according to the power at work within us, which is present tense, currently, currently at work within us. God is able to do right now. There's this, there's this theme of power throughout Ephesians as I've talked about briefly. Uh, the Ephesian culture was very magical. That's a weird way to describe it. They used a lot of folk magic, a lot of casting spells. Uh, and so when I say magic, just think of like combining three weird ingredients. When your baby's sick, you can put all the stuff together, drop three drops on his head and have him wear a charm bracelet, pray to these three spirits, and you'll be protected from sickness. That is what Ephesus is really familiar with. You may even remember in, in the book of Acts, there's a, some unfortunate sons of a Jewish high priest, the sons of Sceva, that go around trying to cast out demons. It says that when the demon beats them up and they run away naked and wounded because this, this demon has beat them up, it says that everyone in Ephesus marveled at the name of Christ. That as a result, people in Ephesus were saved and they believed. Uh, and they burned their magical books, which ended up valuing 50,000 pieces of silver, which I'm sure is a lot since it's mentioned. So Ephesus is well familiar, uh, whether they're a Jew or a Gentile, with this, this magic. And they have an understanding of different powers. And Paul, throughout the book of Ephesians, is going to emphasize there's a, there's a greater power. That's why he talks about how Christ displays to the authorities, the, the demons. He displays his power in the gospel. 
showing off his wisdom, essentially saying, your power is nothing in comparison to me. And Paul's encouraging the Ephesian believers with this. Paul references this power in his prayer uh, just before this doxology. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family on heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So, therefore, the spirit of God is this power. Again, Paul's very Trinitarian. And it's the spirit of God that is this power. For the believer, everything you do is done according to this power. This power at work within you results in everything that you do. According to 1 Corinthians, you're coming to faith is the result of the Spirit. Your love of God is the result of the Spirit. Your ability to claim that Christ is Lord is the result of the Spirit. Your ability to do anything good that in any way resembles Christ is a result of the Holy Spirit. He is the power at work within us. I think uh, the reason that worshiping God for us, specifically like on a, on a Sunday morning when we all gather, come together to sing and declare praises to God, I think the reason that often that can be difficult for some of us is that we do not recognize this power at work within us as the Spirit, but our own gumption. We just think we're really wise. We're the smart ones that chose Christ. We don't realize that anything good that comes out of our life is the result of the Spirit at work within us. I'm a Christian because I, I made the right choice. I'm a, I'm a good father because I'm just a, a better father than everybody else. I'm a really good Christian because I shared my faith with my neighbor and they came to faith. So I must have nailed how to do evangelism. I'm gonna write a curriculum. I'm gonna send it out to everybody so they can do it just like me because I figured out the best way. No. The Spirit is the reason behind, is this power at work within you, not your own gumption. You're not a Christian uh, because you made the right choice. You made the right choice, and you're a Christian by the grace of God. You're a good father because God is a good father, and the Spirit makes you want to be like God. And you can't awaken a heart to faith. You couldn't even awaken your own, much less anyone else's. So this is all done for the believer according to the power at work within us. When we realize that this is the Spirit of God that causes us to obey the Lord, as Ezekiel 36 says, worship and exaltation of God in His mercy and might become far more natural. When you come on a Sunday morning and there's this understanding in your mind that, no, anything good I have is the result of God. If I have a good conversation with my coworker about Christ, if I'm able to share the gospel, if I talked about something with my wife and we didn't get in a fight, praise God. It's not because, oh, I figured out the finesse. I figured out how to have these conversations perfectly. I figured it out. No. Anything good that you see come out of your life is a result of God's spirit. He is the power at work within you. So praise God. Do you see how much more naturally praise flows out of you once you realize that it's the spirit at work within us, not our own gumption, not our own finesse. So right now, I don't know <clears throat> what everyone's story in this room is or where 
you come from or, or what you've been through or what you're going through right now. But for the believer right now, think of what God has given to you by grace through faith. Think of what he's called you out of. Remember where you were prior to faith. You couldn't have asked for such grace. And in the same way, know that God is currently working in you. Whatever your struggle, whatever your distrust, whatever your lack of belief, God is working within you by the power of his spirit, the same power that raised Christ from the dead. He's making you more and more like Christ. So this is what's happening, literally, whenever we come together on a Sunday morning. This is our hope. Uh, when we sing on Sundays, our hope is that we would be made like Christ by the power of the Spirit. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but we repeat songs often. Uh, Y'all may have thought, man, there's a new guy singing. Maybe he's going to sing some new songs. No. He did sing some songs differently, though, which was nice. <clears throat> but we have a good reason for, uh, for singing the same songs over and over again. If you want to read more about it, guess what? Parkwaychurch.com slash blog. There's a blog called Why We Limit the Number of Songs We Sing. Uh, and then the designer of that website and the author of that blog. You should check it out. It's helpful. If the point of coming together and singing is just for this individual expression of my love for God, I have this love for God and it's, in, it's a song on my heart, I just got to let it out. That's what many churches understand worship as. We're all just going to get in a room together, sing God these love songs, and oh, I just got to get this song out of my heart because he has blessed me. And that's the, that's the fullest extent of what worship is meant to be. But the question is, it, how could you do that authentically and sing the same songs over and over again? To remember, the Jewish tradition was singing the psalms that we have. And that was a limited number of songs that they sang for thousands of years. So how can we worship God like this, but then it, wouldn't that be inauthentic to saying the same things over again? What if I don't feel super excited about my faith? What if I don't feel like saying Jesus is better? What if I don't really feel like I owe all to Jesus? Yeah, he paid it all, all to him I owe. But I don't really feel that way. I know the right, the right response is we have to say, all to him I owe. But as soon as you walk out of here after singing that song and you hold anything back from God, you just made yourself out to be a liar. If the worship song is all about your individual expression to God, that would be like me telling Kelsey, hey, I'm going to be home at 6 and then literally not being home at 6. It's not true. And so I say all of that to say that our worship has to be something more than just this individual me and God time. He needs to hear my praises. I've got this song in my heart I need to sing. It has to be more than that. Primarily, when we come together and we worship together as a congregation, the Spirit is shaping us into people that believe the words that we sing. We don't often believe that Jesus is better. There is no other so, so sure and steady. No, sometimes we think our bank account is more sure and steady than Christ. We think that our job, we think that our, uh, our fame or our followers on Twitter or whatever is more steady than Christ. But as we sing these songs, we pray that the Spirit would form us, would make good come out of us, would make us be the type of people, be the people that actually believe that Jesus is better. That if we sing, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe, that the Spirit would convict us and say, well, then why are you holding back? 
Or we would be in a community group and we had friends in our community group that would ask us, if Christ held nothing back, why are you holding something back? Christ held nothing back all the way to the cross. Why are you holding back? So by the Spirit in this gathering, our prayer is that we are always being formed into the image of Christ. When we take communion, being reminded of, of what Christ has done and being formed into people that joyfully express our glory and adoration to God for the sacrifice he's provided to redeem, him, to redeem us to himself. As we pray, we're being reminded of the fact that God, God hears us. God listens to us. As we read his word, we're reminded of the fact that by his grace, he has spoken to us. He has given us his law, his eternal law. He's given us his eternal word. And as we pray, we know that we're praying in the spirit. And we're reminded of the fact that all of us, I'm pretty sure, are Gentiles in the room. At one point, we could only get so close to God. But now it says that, that we are Christ's temple and the spirit dwells within us, the church. Every good and perfect gift comes from God, and anything good that you find within yourself has been granted to you by God alone, according to the power at work within you by the Spirit. So we can praise God for that. One more reason I mention all of this is that what, what Paul's going to do in Ephesians coming up, Jeff's going to be preaching next week, so if you're like, man, this is rough, come back next week, I will, I'll be back in my place, don't worry. Uh, Next week, Paul will begin to kind of shift his language. So far in Ephesians, all he's really been talking about is, look at what God has done. Look at this amazing thing. And he prays that the Ephesians would actually be able to look on the same things and marvel at those. And then he, right now, he's just sitting. It's kind of like this hinge where he's, he's just imagining, look at what God has done. Praise be to God forever and ever. And next week, throughout the rest of Ephesians, Paul will be saying, therefore, live accordingly. Therefore, I urge you to walk in a manner according to what you've been called. He's going to say, look what God did. I guess for you it's this way. Look what God did. Praise God for it. And now, therefore, live differently. That's what Paul's going to be doing. And so it's important to realize that the Spirit of God is this power that's going to help us, enable us, empower us to do the things that he's going to call us to. In the next few weeks, I guarantee you because the Word of God has this power, I guarantee you that you will be convicted of sin. You'll find areas in your marriage that you're, you're lacking. You'll find areas, uh, if you're, if you're a, a child, you'll find areas in which you're not submitting to your parents. You'll find areas in which uh, there is just sin and you'll be convicted by the Spirit. And let me encourage you that the Spirit that has made you even desire to be in relationship with God is the same Spirit that will guarantee you will be made into the likeness of Christ, that you will be able to obey all that you're commanded. So that's why Paul talks about this, according to this power at work within us. Praise God, as we learn all of these commands that are given to us in Ephesians, we can be encouraged that we're not in it alone. It's not up to us. If it was up to us, we would fail again and again and again. But by the Spirit, we can actually be made into the likeness of Christ. Amen? So now, Paul says, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. He's just finally continuing. Like me, he goes off on rabbit trails. And so he started out saying, now to him, and then he got distracted, who is able to do far abundantly more than we can ask or think according to the power of work within us, and he gets back to it. Now to him, 
be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is the point of, of all of this. God's glory. Glory to God in the church and in Christ Jesus forever. God's utmost desire in everything is glory. What does God care about the most? Glory. His glory. And he will have glory forever. There are so many things uh, in churches everywhere and in our church that will try to compete for the glory of God. But it says here that what is supposed to be in the church? Glory. That is our existence. Our mission is to glorify God. But there's so many distractions. Of course, the enemy works in that way to distract us from our actual calling as a church. We get distracted by our preferences. Well, I like this preacher better. I like this style of music better. I really wish that uh, all of these preferences. We have all these things that distract us. But the number one reason that we exist as a church is for the glory of God. I know this because Isaiah 43, 6 through 7 says, I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. This is why we exist. It's no coincidence that Paul in his prayer earlier in Ephesians 14 uses the phrase, he, he says that he bows his knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. He's recognizing in Isaiah that we are all created for God's glory. God's church exists for this one end, to glorify God. And the Parkway Church exists to glorify God. We exist to glorify God by making disciples. That's our mission. It's right on the front of our website. We exist to, to glorify God by making more God glorifiers, by equipping others to glorify God. And the church are all of those who are in Christ Jesus. Essentially, so long as there is Christ, Christ being eternal, there will be those who are in Christ, that being the church. Therefore, so long as there is Christ, there will be those who are in Christ glorifying God. And this gives us this hope of a future. We have an eternal destiny, an eternal call to glorify God. There's this moment in the Old Testament in uh, 1 Samuel when the Ark of the Covenant, which was considered, uh, it, it was literally the manifest presence of, of God's glory. Uh, it's stolen from the Israelites by the Philistines. And the glory is said to have departed from Israel. Meaning for them, in Israel, meaning a loss of identity, a loss of safety, a loss of a hope for a future, a loss of, of really life completely. But if God's glory will be proclaimed in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever, then we have a hope that the glory of God will never depart from the church since the church is in Christ. Does that make sense? Did I say that too fast? Forever we have this hope that God's glory will remain in the church. So long as the church is in Christ, the church will remain and glorify God, fulfill our mission to glorify God in Christ. And Paul says this will happen throughout all generations, forever and ever. Paul again uses this weird phrase that nobody else uses. Uh, he combines, you could say throughout all generations, that would mean forever, and you could also say forever and ever, and that would mean forever and ever. But he puts the two together, meaning super forever, forever. That's his way of saying, think of forever, and then 
add a little more to that. It's a lot, forever and ever and ever. And then he says, amen, which is a phrase anyone that's ever prayed before knows really well, but we often have really no understanding of what that word means. Is it really just like a, all right, how, how will God know that I'm done praying unless I say amen? Is it like the, the over and out? Is God waiting there like, you didn't say amen, amen? No. <clears throat> Brian Martin, keeping it, keeping it laugh worthy. <laughs> no, no, no. Amen is this Hebrew word, and we don't have a word for it in English. Amen is this, uh, this uh, transliteration that we've just brought into the English language. And in fact, most languages don't have a word for amen, and so they just say amen. So if you go to a church in Germany, they'll say amen at the end of their prayers. If you go to a church in Japan, they'll say amen at the end of their prayers. If you go to a church in Israel, they will say amen at the end of their prayers. And it's this, it's this uh, Hebrew word that, well, let me give you some Old Testament examples, and this may help us to understand what it means. Deuteronomy 27.15 says, cursed by the, whoa, cursed is the man, I think. No, cursed be the man who makes a, a carved or cast metal image an abomination to the Lord, a thing made by the hands of a craftsman and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. You see that? That's kind of like, for show. Yes. Super cursed. Uh, Nehemiah 8, 5 through 6. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, and this book is the word of God, as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And so then the New Testament use is the same. Essentially, this word, there's so many examples I could give, but it basically means totally, yes, indeed, affirmative. I totally agree. Everything you're saying, yes. I put my hope in that. There's my trust in that. And so... Whenever someone makes a great point in a sermon or something like that, and you've seen this tradition of people going, amen, they're actually using that correctly. Yes. <laughs> so amen in this context is this emphatic yes to God's glory throughout all generations forever and ever. Yes, always Christ. Yes, always my hope is found in Christ and glory be in the church throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. For eternity, my prayer is that we will emphatically affirm, trust, and agree that God is worthy of eternal glory. And this is how Paul ends his doxology. A lot of people, including myself, think that as this was read, as this letter was read to the church in Ephesus, that when they got to this place, and he said, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, the people actually audibly responded saying, amen. Paul's doxology and the theology that precedes it gives us a beautiful and often neglected biblical view of what worship ought to be. And this is, this is kind of where we'll end. As I said, a doxology, all doxologies are built upon and fueled by what precedes it. So a doxology is kind of like this crown that you put on top of a, of a body of theology. And so we saw Ephesians 1 through 3, and then Paul just praises God, and this is, this is the end. This is the crowning jewel of this first half of Ephesians. And it's built upon and fueled by 
all of the theology that precedes it. So what that means is that a doxology is only as strong as the theology that precedes it. And in the same way, our worship, our doxology, is only as strong as the theology that's fueling it every day. Our doxology, our worship of God, is only as strong as the theology that is preceding it. There's usually two types of people, and when I'm leading over here, I can usually see them. <laughs> There's two types of people in the church. There's some who come, they're here for the sermon. Let's just get through the song stuff. They're kind of crossing their arms, and they're just waiting. I'm here for, I'm here for the theology. Let's preach. That's why I got here. I didn't come here to sing with all these people, especially this guy behind me who cannot sing. And then there's this other person who's, oh, theology is just for big-headed theologians. Now, anyone that loves theology is just arrogant. All that matters is, is Jesus is Lord, and that's all I need to know, and I'm just going to sing, sing, sing all day because it makes me feel so great in my heart. If you're the person that comes in and it's just, oh, just get through the song, get through the prayer, oh, communion. Ooh, I just want to hear the sermon. I want to listen to another theological equipping class. The point of your theology, your grasp of theology, your study of theology is meant for glory of God. You're created for the glory of God, and your theology is only worth as much as your doxology. The demons have a better theology than you do. All of us in this room, we combined all of our wisdom of God together. The demons know more than you do. But what do they not do? Worship God. They don't honor and glorify God. So if you have all this theological knowledge, but there's no worship, there's no doxology, what, what, is, what is your theology worth? And if you're the type that doesn't want to study any theology, oh no, I don't want to know about any of that, I just want to worship God, how can you actually worship God that you have little to no desire to actually know more fully? How does that make sense? It's like me telling, oh, I love my wife, she's like, let me tell you about my day, I don't want to know about that, but I love you, <laughs> that doesn't make sense. I'm not, I'm being two-faced, I'm being dishonest. So we have to see here, and we see in Paul's doxology, that strong theology, and a strong doxology go hand in hand. They lean on one another. If your theology is not leading to worship, then there's some crack in your theology. There's a crack in your foundation. You don't believe that God finds his glory important, and therefore your theology is wrong. And if your worship is not founded on strong theology, well, just wait until you're faced with some kind of difficulty. You will always suffer as well as you know the God who is sovereign over your suffering. You'll only suffer as well as you know and understand the God who is sovereign over your suffering. Everything we do here at Parkway, under the leadership of our elders, is aimed at glorifying God by making disciples. Another way to say the exact same thing is that we exist to glorify God through equipping others to glorify God. So things like Theological equipping, our ultimate aim is to glorify God. That is our desire. When, when people are organizing community groups and you're confessing sin to one another, our ultimate aim, yes, we want to learn who God is, but your knowledge of God should lead and result to worship of God. And if it doesn't, there's something wrong. And listen, that's okay. That's all of us. We're all in that boat. 
We all love knowing stuff about God and we all love worshiping ourselves. But everything that we do here at the Parkway Church is aimed at equipping us to present our doxology to God, to stand before him and and, and respond as a result of all he has done. Uh, One author put it, we, the blessed, bless the blesser as a result of his blessing. That's why we exist. And so if you strengthen your theology, our prayer is that you would strengthen your doxology. And as your doxology grows, we pray that you would continue to want to know the God that you're singing about, that you're praying to, that you're, you're worshiping as you talk with your wife, as you talk with your kids, uh, as you talk with your husbands. We want you to continue to know God more fully and worship him as a result. So as the men come forward, I want us to just think through this question. This morning, what is fueling your doxology? What is the fuel behind the doxology? Are you believing some corrupted theology? Are you believing that God doesn't want your worship? Are you believing that your worship is not good enough? In Christ, it is good enough. And realizing that, that strong theology will lead you to strong doxology. Are you believing that God doesn't care about his people singing praises to him? You you, you just kind of ignore the entire book of Psalms that exists for that purpose? Are you ignoring the commands of his word? Are you neglecting to read his word? Are you trusting in yourself rather than the power of the spirit? What is the theology that is fueling your doxology? So as the men continue to come forward, I'm going uh, to pray for us today. Lord, you're worthy of our worship. You're worthy of highest praise. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. I pray, Lord, as we enter into a time of communion, that we would be reminded of your mercy. We would be reminded of your goodness, of your grace, that we would worship you as a result. And Lord, as we, as we grow in our faith, as we grow in theology, as we grow uh, here at the Parkway Church, you just make us more and more like Christ. I pray that that would lead to Christ-like uh, glory, that we would glorify you as Christ did. Christ lived to glorify the Father, and I pray that we would do the same. So it's in the name of Christ, in whom we are sealed by the Spirit, uh, we pray all of this. Amen.